So we come to Job chapter 6, reading the entirety of that chapter. Job 6. God's holy and inspired word. Give your attention to the reading of it, Job chapter 6. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been stammering. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass? Or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even... Exult in pain unsparing, for I have not hidden the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? What is my end that I should be patient? My strength, is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans run aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Timah look, the travelers of Sheba hope. They are ashamed because they they were confident. They come there and are disappointed. For, for you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Have I said, make me a gift? Or from your wealth offer a bribe for me? Or deliver me from the adversary's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? Teach me, or I will, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. What does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn, let no injustice be done. Turn now, my vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? As for the reading of God's word, they bless it to us. So there's a popular notion or saying that's going around, and this is the need to be seen. It's all the trend to be seen. And sure, as a fashion fad, this has become a cliche. It's often used in silly ways to justify one's vanity or just one's need for attention. And yet there's a truth behind this notion. Namely, as God's creations, we need, at least on some level, to be recognized as individuals, as our unique selves. 
For we live in a world of constant groupings. We are lumped into all sorts of categories by gender, by ethnicity, economics, political party, even the brand of jeans you wear. Now such sortings have their place and use, but if we are merely the sum total of our group identities, then we've become just another lamb in the flock. One more spot on the leopard, more animal than human. Thus we need at least some people, our close friends and family, to know us and love us as a unique person, as a distinct soul created by God. And as Job continues to writhe in his agony, he shows us the deeper anatomy of this truth in life and in our relationships. So Eliphaz has just finished his first session as Job's counselor. And his basic point was that Job was being foolish and over the top with his grief. What Job needed was to pull it together, repent, and wait for God's hasty and idyllic restoration. After his colossal calamity on the therapy couch of Eliphaz, Job hears, Be humble under God's discipline for your sin and wait. Well, how would you respond to this? Well, the microphone gets handed back to Job, and we get to hear his hot take. He says, oh, that my vexation were weighed. If only my calamity were laid in the balances. He forms here a very vivid image of a pair of an of old-fashioned scales. This is the type that looks sort of like a T, with, and the crossbar tilts one to one side or another, whichever one is heavier. Thus, in one side, he puts his vexation and calamity, the loss and grief he is suffering and is suffering. And this vexation is a, is a direct counterpoint to Eliphaz. For in chapter 5, verse 2, Eliphaz warned Job against excessive vexation as, as vexation kills the fool. Job's emotional grief is dangerous and foolish. He just better stop it. So Job says, you think you know my grief? The deep throbbing of my loss? Okay, well, let's weigh it. On one side of the scales, put my disaster and misery, and on the other side, all the sand of the seas. Scrape the world beaches clean and pour the sand on the balances, but my grief would be heavier. Sam, sand is the epitome of what is uncountable and inestimable, and it gets crushingly heavy. Yet the heartache and trouble of Job weighs more. The tonnage of his woe tips the world. Over the top, Eliphaz, you have no idea the bulk of my trauma. His obese grief is why Job's words are stammering. In verse 3, the word here does not mean rash in the sense of ill-advised. Job is not confessing heedless words. Rather, he's saying his first speech was stammering, garbled, and grievous due to his hammering pain. When you are in intense discomfort, your words don't always work so well. 
There may also be a play here, as the word for stammering sounds like the word for slurping, drooling, saliva-soaked mumbling. He drooled out garbled words of shooting pain. Job's harrowing first speech was then not a sign of folly, but the effect of heavy and arduous agony. And Job adds to the image of his pain. He says the arrows of the Almighty stick in him. His spirit drinks their poison. God's terrors besiege him as if in battle. He presents God as the divine warrior. He's filled Job with arrows as if he's a pincushion. The toxin of their tips leak into his bloodstream as if he's on a drip of mercury or lead slowly poisoning him. As a merciless marine, God tortures Job, besieged by divine terrors and decorated with arrows as if a peacock. And this counters Eliphaz's point on discipline. Remember, he said, this is the Almighty's discipline, which comes from a father to improve. But Job says, no, God's not playing the father with me, but the warrior tormenting me on his rack of pain. Thus Job asks, does a wild donkey bray over grass? Does a cow moo when it has hay? Well, certainly not. Animals don't make noise when they're well-fed. Rather, they low and whinny when they're hungry. The ox moos on an empty and growling tummy. Job's point is that he's braying and mooing, which is not a sign of sin or folly, but of need and pain. Eliphaz read Job's lowing as evidence of his impropriety, but this is not the case. Likewise, in chapter 4, Eliphaz compares Job to a roaring lion, an arrogant and loud carnivore that God will hunt down. Yet, Job responds by saying he's not being a predator, Instead, he's a grazing herbivore who's starving to death. Eliphaz cannot tell the difference between a famished cow and a proud lion. And Job continues the idea of food and taste. For the feeding trough of Job isn't quite empty, but it has nasty fare in it. He says, can insipid food be eaten without salt? Is there any good flavor in mallow juice? Now, mallow is a weed, also called oxton or alkanect, and its sap is kind of like the white fluid of a milkweed. The point being, the food is so bitter and foul, it is inedible. So he adds, my throat refuses to touch it. My food is as sickness, literally. That is, he attempts to eat his disgusting fodder, but he gags and vomits. You know how this is. When you try to eat something, but you physically cannot swallow it, your throat closes on you and your stomach purges. And so is the cuisine of Job. But what does his nasty eats refer to? Well, he is likely being somewhat literal, Remember, society has Job living in the dumpster. 
though his squalid chow represents the totality of suffering and pain, and it includes the advice of Eliphaz. Job moves hungrily. Eliphaz catered with his counsel. And Job vomits up the vile and maggot-filled advice. And with this, a poignant truth surfaces. The language of food and taste highlights the personal and unique, the individualistic experience. As you know, your taste in food is your own. It's unique to you, and you can't completely control it. Why do beets make you gag? Mm, They just do. And so Job demands a personal exception to the generalities of Eliphaz. That is, a widespread truth is not sufficient to explain the exceptional and the personal. It's like with medicine. Aspirin properly, properly helps headaches. But on some people, it does nothing. And on a few people, it makes them ill. Eliphaz deploys a generic, broad truth, and he insists that it must apply to Job. It's like he said, Job, you're German. All Germans like sauerkraut, so eat up. And Job says, I don't care. It makes me puke. The whole being of Job cannot eat what Eliphaz is serving. And he gives another example, verse 8. He wishes that God would answer his prayer. May God fulfill my hope. Now, by hope, God links again to Eliphaz. Remember, Eliphaz tried to encourage Job with hope. He said the poor have hope. God wounds, but soon he heals. The hope dangled by Eliphaz was quick restoration. You'll be healthy and well soon enough, Job. This is your hope. Job, though, shakes his head. He says, you want to know my hope? I pray that God would crush me. Let his hand cut me off. Job's hope is just to die. Eliphaz made the mistake of the well-off. If you're rich, you tend to assume everybody wants to be wealthy as you. If you're healthy, you think that all the sick hope to be well. But not all sick want to be cured. Not all poor want money. Job has no interest in what Eliphaz is is selling. In his grief, the only shiny thing to Job's hope is not health and wealth, but death. God, just let me die. This is the hope of Job, and it is a hope that God will not grant. An unfulfilled hope is bitterness to the soul. This is another crack in Job's already broken heart. Though Job admits to having a single comfort, one comfort remains for his poisoned spirit, verse 10. Now, this verse is a bit difficult. Yet the second line should not say exult, but better jump, recoil, or writhe. And the word in line 3 does not mean denied, but to hide, to conceal, or to suppress. That is, Job's comfort is that even as he recoils in pain without mercy, he has not hidden his words about the Holy One. His comfort is that he's spoken the hard truth. 
His words are frank and honest to God and about God. Note he does call God the Holy One here, so he does not impute any impurity to the Lord. But Job has talked straight. Often in polite society, in respectable piety, honesty is judged as rude. It's too coarse, disrespectful, and improper. It is shunned as gutter talk with no proper place in the carpeted halls and amid fine drapery. And yet reality is made of dirt and pus. When you step in crap, you got to call it what it is. And so Job has not concealed the shaggy and rough truth about the Holy One. Besides, Job, he says, is too weak to wait. Eliphaz said, just wait a bit longer and it will be fine. But Job is not made of stone and bronze. There's no help left within him. He has no resources left. He has nothing left in the tank to be patient. And how true this is. Being patient in tribulation is a virtue, but it's one that our muscles are often too feeble to lift. We like to say the best things come to those who wait. Or we say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But the reality is we are often too frail. We die waiting. We crumble. We stumble while waiting. We crumble under the hardship. And so Job admits that he's hit his limit. He can't go an inch further. Our mortal frames are not of stone and metal, but they are flower petals and blades of grass, delicate and flimsy. And feeling his wits in, Job now points this finger at his friends. All three of them, verse 14. Now this, verse 2, is a bit tricky, but the ESV renders it, most likely incorrectly. The JPS translates it rightly. It should read, a friend owes loyalty to one who falls, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. The first line of this verse brings up the duty of a true friend. A friend is required to show loyalty and kindness. Steadfast love is the prime ingredient in friendship. And this kind of loyalty must be given especially when you have fallen, are despairing, or despondent in grief. When you are down and discouraged, you are due loyal kindness from your friend if he is true. Well, Job is despairing, and his friends exhibit no loyalty to him. Where's his friendly mercy? Where's their love and sympathy? And the second line packs more punch, even when he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. That is, even when your faith stumbles, when your fear struggles, a friend should show you loyalty. When doubts and atheism push aside your faith and fear in God, a friend should remain loyal with kindness. What a powerful influence of a true friendship to stay by your side even when you don't want to be anywhere near God. This is what Job rightly expected from his friends. 
Eliphaz should have supported Job with kindness even if his faith had grown weak. Instead, though, he says his brothers are treacherous to him. Here he calls his friends brothers, and he compares them to a wadi. Now a wadi in Israel is a ravine with a seasonal stream or river. It flows in the rainy season, and it's dry in the summer. And many of the wadis in Palestine are in deep gorges. But how are they like a wadi? Well, his description is fairly long. He says, in winter, wadis are dark with ice and covered with snow, dangerous and lethal. You cannot see the slippery ice below where you might break through. Yet in summer, the streams wither and disappear. Just when it's hot and you're thirsty, the wadi has no drink for you. Then, when dry, the wadis were often used as a road, as a path from the lowlands to the highlands, a favorite avenue for the caravans and traders of Tamah and Sheba. Yet, when you start up a wadi, you have no idea where it leads. You could run into dead ends, rock slides, sheer cliffs, and especially flash floods unleashed by monsoons many miles ahead that you cannot see. Thus the hopes of caravans are often dashed. Dangerous in winter, dry when thirsty, and treacherous roads of false hopes. And so has been the friendship of Eliphaz and his plus two. This is a fickle friend, a treacherous brother or sister. Instead of kind loyalty, the friends, he says, has become nothing. No good, no help, no comfort, verse 21. And why? Well, basically because of their cowards. He says they saw his calamity, they witnessed his ugly grief, his harrowing loss, and they were terrified. When we see a terrible problem, our first tendency is to dance around it. We pretend it's not there. Or we treat something easier. Grandpa abused granddaughter. Mom drinks too much. Brother's cutting himself. With cowardice, we brush it under the rug or it's explained away. We treat the symptoms and not the underlying disease. Well, this is Job's friends. The true horror of what happened to Job is too scary for them. They cannot admit the truth, and they pretend to fix the easy explanations. They will wipe his mouth, but they will not change his diaper. Indeed, Job clarifies what he wanted from his friends, and he does by listing off what he didn't ask of them. Did he ask for a gift? No. How about a payment from their wealth? No. Did he ask them to rescue him from a foe or to redeem them from an adversary? No. Verse 24 is also part of what Job did not request. He didn't say, teach me. Job didn't ask for a lecture for how he went wrong. Thus, Job did not ask for money. He didn't ask for a meal. He didn't ask them to be his attorney in court. And he especially didn't plead for them to lecture him on all his faults, mistakes, and errors of why he is suffering. All he wanted was tender love, the love of loyalty, 
but he got a grouchy nun with a yardstick. Indeed, the stress falls on the unsolicited correction in verses 26 and 20, uh, 25 and 26 that are a pair. The first line is a question, literally. He says, why are my frank words so sickening to you? Upright here is the sense of frank, honest, straightforward. And forceful is causing irritation to the friends. Job's coarse honesty bugs the friends to death. And so he gets in return constant rebuking from them. They think they can rebuke his words. They count his despairing speech as wind, worthless, vain, ephemeral. They reckon Job's lament as a loud belch among lords and ladies. Sneers and scolding must be dished out. Note this reiterates what he said earlier about his honest and straight talk being his comfort. He must call his reality as it is, which the friends are too cowardly to handle. And so they castigate and reprove him as impious, no better than a fool. And Job takes it further. He says, you're casting lots over an orphan. You're bartering over a friend. Two things are here. One, it's as if they are playing a game with Job. It's like he's a charity case to these three rich friends, and they're competing who could cure Job better. Job is like a horse to them that they're betting for, against, or shorting. Two, they categorize Job as an orphan. They see him merely by a group identity. They profile, stereotype, and pigeonhole him. He's merely an orphan, and all orphans are the same. Just take two repentance pills, and you'll be fine in the morning. And so note, Job cries out, look at me. Look at me right in the face. Job demands to be seen as an individual. They must see his unique and personal, the personal man that he is. He's not a category, a cliche, a faceless figure in the crowd. Eliphaz is counseling a stereotype. He's fixing a label, an amorphous group identity. Eliphaz is advising as a sociologist. And so Job tells them just to look at him. They must see his distinct face with all its moles, zits, and stubble. He swears to them he will not lie to his friends, for his vindication is at stake. Job's righteousness is on the line. Nothing could be more pressing and serious. Job is standing in court. The charges are filed. Is Job upright? Does he love God truly? And his friends play with Job as a stereotype. You reap what you sow. Your vexation is a sure sign of sin. Just repent and get it over with. But no, this is no time for typecasting by group identities. His friends were supposed to be loyal, but they stand with Satan, throwing charges at Job. They won't even see Job. And so Job rounds his point by returning to the imagery 
of tasting food? Cannot my palate taste calamity? Job is eating the rotten fare of his grief. He can feel the maggots on his tongue. His stomach lurches and kicks. Job is not eating, or Eliphaz is not eating Job's meal. He is not Job, and his constitution differs. With a general stereotype, Eliphaz is telling Job just to eat it, and that it's fine. But as an individual, Job knows what he is tasting. It is grievous calamity, poisonous arrows from God. This is not discipline for sin. It is God as enemy, where death is Job's only hope. And Job's cry to be seen, to be treated as a friend, is a call to us as well. The picture of Job here speaks a thousand words to us. First, by way of the negative, Job shows us what we need in our weakness and trouble. Job's strength had evaporated. He was empty with no help in him. All his resources had vanished, and he looked outside of himself. He looked to his friends for loyal kindness, for steadfast love, for some gracious sympathy. And it's the same for us. We are frail. You are not made of marble and iron. You do not have an endless supply of self-help. Our flesh is soft. Our souls are glass-like. Trees that cannot walk or talk outlive us tenfold. And this is true as we endure the regular challenges of our life, but especially in our sin. Job was not suffering for his sin, but our chief weakness is the wages of sin. And who is our fast friend? Who is our external source of help? Jesus Christ. For it was Jesus who said, I no longer call you my servants, but I've called you my friends. The resurrected Lord calls us brothers and sisters. As Jesus said, there is no greater love than this, than someone to lay down his life for his friend. And Jesus loved you to die for your sins. As your high priest, Jesus knows how to show you sympathy, kindness, and patience. Indeed, even when our faith stumbles, when we let go of godly fear, God, Jesus is yet loyal to you. He goes after the one lost sheep. The father welcomes home the prodigal. Jesus loved us while we hated him. He loves us when our faith is healthy, and Jesus loves us when your faith is down in the dumps. Additionally, Jesus is is your friend to you as an individual. As your shepherd, he knows you by name. He loves you as the distinct, unique person that God created you to be. The Father created us kind of like snowflakes. No two are alike. And Christ Jesus sees you as the snowflake you are. 
Sure, we have glorious group identities in Christ. We are the elect. We are the bride, the body of Christ, the covenant community, the people of God, the temple of God. But these wonderful blessings of us together do not blind Jesus from knowing you as a person and loving you. Beloved saints, Jesus loves you and knows you by name now and forever. He is your friend above all friends. And so from the friendship of Christ and from the lack of friendship Job received, God instructs us and enables us to be better friends. Let us not be those who are limited and absorbed by group identities. We should not treat each other as stereotypes, but let us care for one another as individuals. In the best sense of the phrase, may we see one another. Moreover, may we not be cowards. Crap happens. We have to slog through the manure. Life's problems stink and are nasty. And But we should not be so polite or so pious to fail to hear the grit and smelliness of honest speech. And of particular importance, may we be friends of steadfast kindness and loyal love. Especially when others stumble in the faith, let us be there with sympathy, with honesty, to listen and to be by their side. For we are weak. We cannot go it alone. We need the friendship of each other, which is actually one of the graces of Jesus. Jesus is your friend by giving you believing friends. Thus, praise the Lord for the redeeming friendship and love of Christ that loves you now, that keeps you through life, through death, and forever for his glory. Amen.